0: And today, we're going to continue with the study of the central nervous system, the brainstem. The brainstem is that part of the nervous system, central nervous system, that connects to the the, the spinal cord. And it has three regions, the midbrain, and the medulla oblongata. Its brain brainstem is very similar to the spinal cord since it is surrounded by white matter. From outside you can see it wider than the cerebrum it looks a little darker, gray matter. And what it happens in the brainstem, automatic control of automatic functions, automatic behaviors, for survival. For instance, in the medulla oblongata, we have the cardiovascular center, the respiratory center functions that are automatic. And they establish a connection between higher and lower centers. By meaning higher, the cerebral cortex, lower, many other neurons in the spinal cord. And there are groups of neurons located in the brain stem and midbrain and pons and medulla oblongata, which are associated with cranial nerves. The brainstem contains three regions: midbrain, the pons, and the medulla oblongata. Where exactly they are, highlighted here: the medulla oblongata the pons below this and the midbrain are two projections that come out of the pons like two branches of white matter getting deep into each cerebral hemisphere and below the medulla oblongata continues with the spinal cord but the brain stem again are midbrain, pons, and medulla oblongata. A different view of the brain stem and a projection on the surface of the cerebrum and an isolated piece, so we remove all the cerebral tissue. This is what we see the midbrain is this region, the pons in different color, and the medulla oblongata. We can see cranial nerves. Cranial nerves are nerves that arise from the brainstem, and they're going to take care of functions in the head, mostly, like the optic nerve, like uh, sensation of the face, movement of the facial muscles, uh, hearing, most of the things that happen in the head cranial nerves will be connecting to that. So we're starting with a description of the midbrain. The midbrain, it is in between the diencephalon and the pons. The diencephalon is seen in this uh, picture and is labeled as a thalamus, the diencephalon. It is, the midbrain is in between the diencephalon and the pons. And the cerebral peduncles are those projections that I highlighted in the diagram in the midbrain. There are two things that go inside the cerebral hemispheres. Those are called cerebral peduncles. And they contain some fibers that are called pyramidal motor tracts because they come from the cerebral cortex, basically motor fibers. And in the middle of the midbrain, if we make a transverse section in the very central part, we'll see a duct, a channel that contains cerebrospinal fluid. And it's actually connecting two ventricles the third ventricle and the fourth ventricle. And it's running in the middle of the midbrain. We find neurons in the midbrain located and organizing nuclei and they are the corpora quadrigemina which has two divisions superior colliculi and inferior colliculi these neurons will take care of visual reflex they are centers that receive connections from the eyes and the inferior colliculi are neurons that receive signals from the auditory nerves from hearing There are two superior collicula, two inferior collicula, that's what we call corpora quadrigemina. Quadri, that means four. And the other group of neurons in the midbrain is called substantia nigra, which is associated with control of involuntary movements. These neurons are related to control of involuntary movements. If these neurons are damaged, we have the disease called Parkinson's disease where we cannot inhibit movements, involuntary movements of our hands. That's how we see the midbrain. This is a section at the level of the midbrain where we can see this little canal in the very central part called the cerebral aqueduct. And these areas that look brown are called substantia nigra. These contain neurons that are going to inhibit involuntary movements. If this is damaged, then we'll have Parkinson's disease. And the cerebral peduncles, are 2 in both sides, going to each cerebral hemisphere. Second, next to the midbrain, we have the pons. The pons, it is in between the midbrain and the medulla oblongata, which is lower. There are tracts here, tracts running from higher center to lower center. And fibers that will go transversely between the pons and the cerebellum. They bring fibers from the motor cortex of the cerebrum and connect to the cerebellum. Because when we make a movement, it is very complex, it's not just the order coming from the cerebral cortex down the spinal cord, it has to establish connections with substantia nigra, with the cerebellum, so our movements will be well-coordinated, planned, and uh, according to what we want to do. And so fibers and the pons connect to the cerebellum in a transverse way. The cranial nerves, They are named with Roman numerals and a description or word that describes their function, usually. Three cranial nerves are originating from the pons. The trigeminal, fifth cranial nerve, abducens, sixth cranial nerve, and seventh cranial nerve, facial nerve. And the section at the level of the pons, we can see this. Here, at the level of the pons, we find the fourth ventricle. That's why this space is bigger. And if you notice in this area, you can see the lines that mean the fibers are going laterally towards the cerebellum. The pons is at the level of the cerebellum. Pons means, that the word actually means bridge. And it is that part that we see in this picture in the very beginning here. So it's actually connecting the cerebrum to the spinal cord. This name says brain stem is like the stem that is holding the whole cerebrum. And that stem has three parts the top part is midbrain, the middle part pons, and the bottom part is the medulla oblongata. And as I was saying, pons, the word means bridge, and it's like a bridge that connects higher centers to lower centers and higher centers to the cerebellum. So inside the pons, these little sections? Inside the pons, this is what we see in this picture, this section at the level of the pons, and where we see these lines that are going to the cerebellum because the cerebellum is on both sides of the pons. Following the pons, we have the medulla oblongata. The medulla oblongata is practically very similar to the spinal cord, but it's a little bit wider, it's thicker. And it goes through this foramen that we studied in bones, the occipital bone, the foramen magnum. That's the space where the medulla. Comes through and originates the spinal cord. In the medulla, we have the fourth ventricle, and in the fourth ventricle, we have membranes called choroid That's where the ependymal cells, these cells of neuroglia, producing the cerebrospinal fluid. Some structures of the medulla oblongata. there are two longitudinal ridges called the pyramids. And they are actually formed by pyramidal tracts, so white matter fibers, meaning axons of neurons coming down from the cerebrum down the spinal cord. And at this point, there is a crossing over or decusation of these tracts, decussation of the pyramids, we call it. And that is a point where the fibers coming from one side of the cerebrum, they cross to the other side. Usually, the this part of the right cerebral cortex controls the left side of the body. And that's because of decusation. Fibers coming down, they cross over, they cross to the contralateral side at the level of the medulla oblongata. And the olives are to ridges or swellings also. And that's where some groups of neurons are located and that's called the inferior olivary nucleus. And these neurons, they get information from the muscles and joints and send it to the cerebellum for coordination, coordination of the movements. At the level of the medulla oblongata, we have the origin of the cranial nerves, eight, nine, 10, and 12. We have neurons that will receive responses from vestibular cochlear nuclei. Vestibular is equilibrium, cochlear is hearing, and other neurons called nucleus cuneatus and gracilis. That they send information or receive information on the spinal cord and from them, they send it to the cerebellum and to the cerebral cortex. This is a sagittal section of the brain, showing the cerebrum, showing the diencephalon, and showing the brain stem. The brain stem is colored all in green and the midbrain will be this first part right here. The pons will be the second part. The pons, and then the medulla oblongata, the lower part. And as I said, the cerebellum, which is posterior, it is very close to the pons and the medulla. That's why the pons sends fibers to the cerebellum. It's right next to it. Lateral fibers to the cerebellum. What happens in the medulla oblongata? In the medulla oblongata we have something important things. Like this is the center where cardiovascular neurons are located. These neurons will adjust and regulate the force and rate of heart contraction, regulate and adjust blood vessel diameter, blood pressure regulation so the neurons in the medulla we'll are really important. This is the place where the cardiovascular functions are controlled. And it's connected to the hypothalamus as part of the autonomic nervous system. There are also neurons that control respiratory functions like the rhythm of the respiration, rate, depth of breathing, and other nuclei, neurons that control some reflexes that we see here, like vomiting, hiccuping, swallowing, coughing, sneezing. All these are functions that are controlled by neurons, and these neurons are in the medulla oblongata. Now talking about the cerebellum. Cerebellum is an organ that represents about 10-11% of the brain mass and is dorsal to the pons and medulla, so posterior to the pons and medulla. What happens in the cerebellum? It receives input from the cortex, from the brain stem and from sensory receptors of the skin muscles tendons joints to provide coordination to the movements of the muscles at the same time it plays a very important role in balance thanks to the cerebellum is that we can walk without falling is that we can stand on one foot we can walk in a straight line All these functions are coordinated by the cerebellum. Equilibrium. Equilibrium and coordination of movements. Cerebellum is posterior to the pons and medulla, and as we see here in this sagittal section, there are two portions of this organ, the anterior lobe and posterior lobe, which are shown in different colors. And we can also see the arrangement of gray matter and white matter. The gray matter is outermost and the white matter is central. That arrangement of gray matter and white matter and the different folds that this issue organ has gives the appearance of a little tree with many branches. That's why the white matter is being named as arbor vitae, which means tree of life. It was one of the first descriptions of the first anatomists that studied the, the brain. They made sections and they saw this kind of tree and they used this name, the arbor vitae, which means tree of life. They, were, um, they realized that this was a very important part of the brain that had to do with maintenance of life and that's the reason why they just chose that name. So there are two hemispheres in the cerebellum, right and left. They are connected by a part that is called vermis, which is just part of the cerebellum, is how it is arranged. And all the foldings that we see are called folia because they look like pages, like of a book. Anterior, posterior lobe, and there's another lobe called floccular nodula, which is small and internal. And as I was saying, the uh, the thin cortex of gray matter and white matter gives a pattern of a little tree called Arbor Vitae. Here we can see the arrangement of these... Different folia foldings of the cerebellum with the arbor vitae and uh, the location of the pons. We can see here that the pons is anterior to the cerebellum, the medulla oblongata, which is this part right here, and the fourth ventricle, which is this triangular region, is located between the pons and the cerebellum. So in the cerebellum, what happens is coordination, coordination of motor activity. And the activities can be described in something like this sequence. First, orders come from the cerebral cortex. Let's say you want to move a muscle, you want to walk, you want to dance, some type of movement, organized movement. And then signals from proprioceptors that are in the muscles, tendons, joints, will arrive to the cerebellum. And they will inform about the body's position, muscular tone, presence of the gravity, etc. And then the cerebellum, the cerebellar cortex, will receive this information and we'll establish what is the best way to move the muscle in a coordinated contraction. So, orders now that were coming from the cerebral cortex are adjusted and coordinated, like in a sequence of movements, like a blueprint, and those signals are sent to the motor cortex again and to the nuclei of brainstem. So it's like a circle, a feedback loop that occurs there. And then the cerebral cortex has the blueprint of some movements and then send the orders that will uh, make those movements happen. Besides that, the cerebellum seems to have played a role in other functions like language, emotion, because these studies of neuroimaging, that what they do is study the brain at different moments, uh, have seen that the cerebellum it has activity when people are thinking, speaking, or having some strong emotions. Cerebellum is lighted in that way. Now, there are other systems of neurons Organized in networks, and these neurons are located in different places, and that's how we call them systems or formations like limbic system and reticular formation. Neurons connected to fibers located in different areas of the brain, like the limbic system. The limbic system is a group of structures located in the cerebral hemispheres and the diencephalon like the fornix, which is a white matter tract that connects many other regions forming the limbic system. The limbic system is being called the emotional brain because all these loops and orders that happen here have to do with certain emotions. When these parts of uh, of the brain are active, then we express some emotions. These are parts of the limbic system, the amygdala or amygdaloid body. These neurons help to recognize facial expressions of fear, anger, and according to that, elicits a fear response. Now, another part of the limbic system is the cingulate gyrus, which brings fibers and neurons that play a role in expressing emotions with gestures and helps to resolve mental conflict and this goes to more complex connections with the frontal lobe. So in red we see all these parts that are involved in the limbic system. Like one of them is the fornix as we said. The fornix is connected in this way with These other structures located mostly in the temporal lobe, mostly in the temporal lobe. But if you follow them, they establish connection and make like a circle that involves the olfactory bulb also, the smelling sense, olfactory sense. That's why emotions sometimes are related to some types of smell, some odors. And we get a scale like this odor is good, this odor is bad, this is disgusting, this is, well those are emotions that are brought up with uh, the presence of some smell. And the limbic system is connected to the hypothalamus where many psychosomatic illnesses have an origin. Like, you feel like nervous, anxious, and you have abdominal pain, and there is no organic cause, like your stomach is okay. There's nothing wrong with your stomach, but you have a ache. And that is called a psychosomatic illness. So it's elicited by an emotion stimulates pain sensation, but there's nothing wrong with the stomach. It's a psychosomatic problem. And as I said before, the limbic system interacts with the frontal and prefrontal areas in the frontal lobe. And that's how we link emotions to things that we understand to be happening. So the comprehension is always related to emotions. And we are aware, we get consciousness of all the emotions that we have, thanks to the frontal lobe that is interpreting all these sensations. Hippocampus and amygdala body are parts of the limbic system that are associated to the memory. That's limbic system. Now, the other system of neurons is called the reticular formation. This reticular formation, as the name says, reticular from reti, that means network, um, comes all over the brainstem, all over the brainstem, and, uh, and send connections to the hypothalamus, thalamus, cerebral cortex, and cerebellum and spinal cord. This reticular uh, system or reticular formation allows the brain to be aware, alert. The sensation of being awake is the job of the reticular formation. We call it reticular activated system all the connections that involve the cerebral cortex, cerebrum, I mean, cerebellum, hypothalamus, and the brain stem. This system, when it's active, we send impulses to the cerebral cortex, and that's how we keep conscious, alert. It filters out stimuli that are weak or repetitive, familiar. Like when we are conscious and we are paying attention to something the rest of the things that happen around us don't matter we block that but they are happening like if you record uh, the class during the time of the class you are listening and you're watching the slides and writing notes etc you're not listening to other other noise around in the room but if you listen to the recording you will be you realize that there are many other noises happening at the same time like the, the fan running, people walking out in the hallway, and you don't pay attention to that. That's part of the job of the reticular activating system. Filters out information that is not related to your consciousness or concentration at that point. The reticular formation is inhibited by sleep centers. There are neurons that inhibit the reticular formation and fall asleep alcohol, drugs, of course. And this reticular formation are the, uh, the. is a system that gets injured whenever there's an important trauma and we may fall into coma or unconsciousness, prolonged coma, because the reticular activating system is not working or is deficient because there has been some damage to some part of the brain. And the, the this damage that ends up in coma, may have different duration. It may last for hours, days, months sometimes, or even years. It depends how the brain responds. And that's a diagram of how this is seen, all the reticular system, how it works. The input, the important input comes from the eyes, as you see here, They're visual impulses that reach the brainstem, and in the brainstem, all these arrows are sending signals to the thalamus, and from the thalamus, you see all the arrows going to the cerebral cortex, like activating all the neurons, so you'll be aware and alert. Summarizing, this is, these are some tables that summarize most of the functions that we've been describing, like in the cerebral hemispheres, the gray matter. This is where we have neurons to interpret sensory inputs, control voluntary muscle activity, and, of course, intellectual emotional processing in the cortex of the cerebral. Basal nuclei in the center of the brain, They help to control skeletal muscle movements. They coordinate, organize, and adjust movements, orders that come related to movements. The diencephalon, the thalamus, hypothalamus. The thalamus is a center, it's a relay station. Everything, every sensation arrives to the thalamus, and from there is sent to the cerebral cortex for interpretation. It is involved in memory processing also. Hypothalamus, integration center of autonomic nervous system involuntary functions of the body. Regulation of body temperatures, uh, food intake, water balance, many things are very important for survival. Limbic system, we just described it, emotional response, and is involved in memory processing. Brainstem, the midbrain, contains visual and auditory centers, nuclei for cranial nerves, neurons for cranial nerves, third and fourth, and projection fibers that come from the cerebral cortex down the spinal cord. The pons relay information from the cerebrum to the cerebellum because the cerebellum is right next to the pons. and contains projection fibers. Medulla oblongata, here is where we have centers for control of heart rate, blood vessel, respiration. And the medulla oblongata, we have the cardiovascular center and the respiratory center. So if someone has a what we commonly call brain death, some important damage in the cerebral cortex up here because of hemorrhage or of clot or whatever, And just that part, those neurons die, but the brainstem is okay. But still the cardiovascular center and respiratory center are working, and they work through loops. They keep sending signals to the heart, to the lungs, and the person is unconscious, in coma, but the heart is still pumping, and they're still breathing. And even we can take an electroencephalogram to to the brain, and we don't see no waves. That means that the neurons, most of the neurons are dead. That's what we call brain death. But the neurons in the medulla, they're still alive. And they keep sending signals, so the patient is still breathing. Irregular, of course, irregular breathing, is not well controlled, and the heart is pumping still. And the cerebellum, balance, posture, processes information from proprioceptors, cerebral cortex, visual, and equilibrium to maintain the balance. Higher mental functions. Now let's talk about higher mental functions. These uh, functions are located in different places and it's actually the coordination of many areas of the brain of the cerebral cortex, including language, memory, Uh, consciousness, the cycles of sleep and wake, and we're going to talk about electroencephalogram. Electroencephalogram, which measures the presence of electrical brain waves. Starting with the language. Language is the result of many... association of many areas, but especially two. One area located in the frontal lobe called the Broca's area, and an area located in the parietal and temporal called the Vernique's area. Two of these, of these two coordinated, working in a coordinated way, they will allow the language. The Broca's area is for speech production. so That means articulates a voice, the mouth, the tongue, so we can articulate the words, and vernix is an area uh, involved in understanding of spoken words and written words. How they coordinate? It? Well, when we learn how to speak a new language, like when we are children, we learn by listening to the people that live around us. That's how we learn our language. Nobody teaches, like in a class. We just listen and associate those words, those sounds, words, with things and facts, and we learn the language. And then we learn how to speak, how to repeat those words, articulating our words with our voice and our mouth and tongue. That's the way they work the Broca's area and Vernix. Imagine a lesion, a problem in the Broca's area, so these neurons die in the Broca's area. You still understand, you have the Vernix area. You listen and understand the words and everything, spoken word, written word, but you're not able to produce any word because your speech is affected. And if your Vernix area is compromised, you will not be able to understand. It's like, all of a sudden, you are living in a foreign country, you wake up in a foreign country, you don't understand a word. That happens when someone has a problem in the vernix area. You lose understanding of the spoken word. And how are you going to speak if you don't understand that? I mean, you, how are you going to speak that language? You don't know that language. You don't understand it. How are you going to, you have to start to relearn that. So. Sometimes these lesions happen, and that's when people, in, people with stroke, usually. People with stroke, they have this areas compromised, and that's the reason why they cannot speak. And uh, neurologists have to determine which area is compromised, because if not all the neurons are dead, there's still some therapy may help. But some of these people, they probably don't recover whole function, but they are able to make some sounds and get to have themselves understood by other people in some way. And that's spoken words, spoken language. and You have the written language. Um, That's why the the eyes also are uh, an input for language. Again, where these areas are, the Broca's area and the Vernix. The Vernix is these dotted lines in the temporal and parietal lobe. And the broadest area is in the frontal lobe. So these two areas work in a coordinated way for language. Memory. The memory is a storage of information in a way that we can retrieve it. How we store the the memories? Well, they are mainly connections. It's not like molecules that are stored in the neurons, and those are what the memories are. They are actually connections, complex connections in between neurons, and loops, many circles happening. Memory is classified in different types of memory. One type of memory is called declarative memory, facts like names, faces, words, dates. Another type of memory is called procedural memory, Related to skills, when you learn how to play the piano and you don't play it for 10 years, then when you touch the piano again, you remember, you don't forget. That's procedural memory. Or when you learn how to take the blood pressure, you learn all the steps, you practice, you learn it. Those are skills. Even after many years, you can go back and remember and do it again. Modern memory skills like riding a bike that involves motor movements. Riding a bike you need balance, you need to contract the muscles in some way. An emotional memory experiences linked to an emotion like fear, like people get scared just by remembering things that happened in the past. That's emotional memory. Other type of classification is related to the declarative memory and these are the shortened memory and the long-term memory. Short-term memory is temporary. You keep information, hold information for some a brief period of time and it's limited. You cannot remember more than seven numbers like a phone number, but you could. Some people are better than others doing this. But a good example of short-term memory is when someone tells you a phone number and after five minutes you still remember it. That's what usually happens. There is another type of memory called immediate memory, which is like, like right away. Like if you are trying to call someone, you don't know the phone number. You ask your friend, what is the number of this guy? And it tells you the number you dial once, but you cannot dial it twice because you forgot. That is immediate memory. Short-term memory is things that last longer than that, but it won't last for like 24 hours or 48 hours. You will forget. Long-term memory is the one that lasts for a long time. And apparently, it's limitless. And that's how we can remember things from our childhood things, facts, usually we still remember. It will, and we will remember, remember them until the end of our life, probably. So it won't fade. Some of them will fade, but some of them remain. Now, the short-term memory and long-term memory are part of a cycle. So every time that something happens, we store it in our short-term memory. But then some of these facts and things will be stored in the long-term memory. There is a purging process. We select what things are, going, are we going to keep for longer. And this transfer from short-term memory to long-term memory is affected by some of these factors like emotional state. You will remember if there's an earthquake now and many things will happen, you will never forget that experience, you will remember it because it's linked to an emotion, linked to fear, surprise. If you do, if you learn how to play a piano or a musical instrument by repetition, you learn, but then after 10 years you start playing again, you remember, but you have to practice to make it better. Rehearsal will affect this. You stop practicing, stop playing and you will forget some things. Association is something that we do sometimes with people that lose memories, and we tell them words, and they catch words related to these memories. An automatic memory is something that is some subconscious, subconscious information that is stored in the long-term memory. Like those noises that are around us. They enter and all this is input to our brain and it's there, but we are not aware, we're not conscious. They may be stored in the long-term memory. Memory consolidation is the organization of all these facts and things and categories in some way and the hippocampus, temporal lobe, thalamus, prefrontal cortex, and uh, areas involved in consolidation. It's like grabbing books and putting them in shelves, organizing all your memories in some way. This is interesting because it's showing how all these that we are explaining all the memory happens. Information gets to our brain, and that information comes usually from outside. Things we see, things we touch, things we hear or smell. They all, them, all of them go to a temporary storage. Although some of them may go straight to long term memory. But this temporary storage is consolidated later and it goes into a short-term memory. Some of it will be lost completely. We will forget. And some of this short-term memory will be forgotten, but some of it will be consolidated in long-term memory. And those are the factors that help this transfer. transfer. Uh, emotions rehearsal association etc and for the long-term memory we can retrieve retrieve uh, these facts to the short-term memory and bring them back to consciousness but in this process many of these memories will be lost and we keep what we retrieve what we think about but many other things will be for- just forgotten Finally, some words about brain waves, electroencephalogram. We have to study action potentials. So the neurons, the neurons work on the basis of action potentials, EPSPs, IPSPs, and all that. that that's, those are small amounts of electricity signals that run all over the brain. What we do with electroencephalogram is capture all that electricity. And with special sensors and electrodes, we detect the presence of brain waves. We call them brain waves. And that's the electrical activity of all the neurons in your brain. Electroencephalogram is used for many reasons. One of the reasons is to study epilepsy because in epilepsy, some part of your cerebral cortex is activated and it starts firing an impulse. That can be detected with electroencephalogram to see where in your brain is firing a lot of impulses. It is used for sleep disorders. When we assess someone that is not able to sleep for different reasons, we see if the brain is having enough rest or not. And it helps to diagnose tumors, infections, abscesses. It's one of the tests that we use to determine brain death. If we connect the electroencephalogram and we find a flat line, that means that there's no brain activity, the neurons are dead. That's one of the, these devices. That's how we look when we connect it to the surface of the head, the scalp. There are different, there are up to 18 electrodes that are placed anywhere, everywhere in the scalp. But some of them can be placed in the forehead or in the ear, behind the ear. There are many places where we can place and put electrodes and uh, get the electrical, electrical waves. And what we see is different patterns, patterns of electrical activity. Everyone has a unique pattern, but we can find some specific patterns and we call them alpha, beta, theta, and delta waves. And we measure the frequency, meaning how many of these waves happen in one second. How many peaks per second? That's what we call hertz. And according to the frequencies that we describe these waves, alpha waves, beta waves, theta, and delta waves. The alpha waves have this frequency from eight to 13. Beta, 14 to 30, or faster. Theta from four to seven and delta less than four. That's regarding the frequency, but what exactly um, means when a brain is in alpha waves? It means that this is a brain that is go into the relaxation state, like an idle brain. These waves can be seen when you relax. Like a holiday, you don't have anything to do, you don't have class, you don't have work, you don't have anything to do, and you just decide to relax, sitting on a couch with soft music and with a cold drink. Feel feels so relaxed, it feels so good. Almost falling asleep, but you're not sleeping. And we find alpha waves in that, in that state. Beta waves are waves that means mental activity. So when we are writing, when we are thinking, when we are making some calculation, we're making our brain work, that's when we see beta waves. Theta and delta are less common. Theta are seen more in children. It's not common to see them in adults. And delta waves means a reticular activating system is suppressed, like when someone is under anesthesia or in coma or there is a brain damage. So theta and delta are not actually common. The ones are usually we pay attention to are the alpha waves and beta waves, because they help us to see what is the condition or state of the brain in different areas. That's how we see the brains. There is not a specific pattern. It's not like the electrocardiogram. The electrocardiogram, we see a cyclic change, and we can repeat it and see it very clear. In the electroencephalogram, at first sight, it looks very messy. It looks like a line without any meaning. But then you measure the frequency, and then you get to establish if it's an alpha wave, beta wave, theta, and delta wave. Finally, a couple of words about the cycles of sleep and wake. What sleep is, is a state where we get unconscious, but we can be aroused. By some stimulation. What happens during sleep? The activity of the cortex is depressed and the reticular activating system, of course. But brainstem keeps working. There are two types of sleep, and this is according to studies, sleep studies that they do Um, non rapid eye movement and rapid eye movement, non-REM and REM sleep. That's how we call it. And the REM letters come from rapid eye movement because during that part of the sleep, they can measure that the eyes are moving very rapidly from one side to another. So when we get sleep, when we fall asleep, we go through different stages. The first two stages, in terms of time, during the first 30 minutes of sleep, let's say 30, 45 minutes, you go through what we call non-REM sleep. If you measure the movement of your eyes, and they do that with electrodes, your eyes won't move, won't move. It will be, like, completely quiet. But then, later, you get into stages 3 and 4, and this is what we call slow-wave sleep frequency of the uh, electroencephalogram waves will decline. And at about 90 minutes, when we get to the fourth stage, the REM sleep will start. That means that your eyes start moving from one side to another. During this time, there's a temporary paralysis you block all your muscles. Babies are really good at this. You see a baby sleeping, you can lift a hand or a leg and then let it fall and go like, dead. Uh, you, we, we lose out with age. You, know, you do that to someone sleeping, they will wake up. Unless you have a very deep sleep. The oxygen consumption, heart rate, breathing increase, and dreaming is said to happen during REM sleep. This is the way we can see it in a graph. The red line, the red area is we are awake, we start sleeping, and we go to stages one, two, three, and four. When we get to stage four, and that happens at about one hour, one hour and a half after falling asleep, then you go back, like waking up, but you don't wake up. You get into an area called REM sleep. And you sleep some minutes in REM sleep, and then start going down again. Stages one, two, three, and four, and after one hour, one hour and a half again, You go again to REM sleep, and that's how we sleep. Now, you notice that you are in stage one, two, three, and four usually because uh, when you get to stages three, usually stage three, your body temperature will get lower. And that's the point when you feel cold. If you just lay down on the bed at night, there's a point at which you need a blanket to cover yourself. You feel cold. Your body temperature is getting lower. You get into stage three, mostly. Three and four. But during the night, see this, seven hours of sleep. You get like one, two, three, four, four or five moments of REM sleep. That is good. We need to have REM sleep. We need to have this cycle happening in this way, back and forth. That's what is healthy. If we don't have enough REM sleep then we're in trouble because our brain did not have enough rest. Our memories were not consolidated. And the next day we feel so like sleepy, drowsy. We fall asleep anywhere perhaps. We may have headaches. Our mood changes. Slow slow wave like stages three and four are the ones that restore. Those are the ones related with our recovery of the neurons function. During the day, our neurons are in very high activity and during these stages the neurons like kind of recover. they replenish the neurotransmitters, they uh, repair defects on the membranes, the axons. And in the REM sleep in the REM sleep give the brain the opportunity to analyze all things that happen during the day. That's why is, that is related with dreaming. Sometimes you have dreams about what happened during the day or the ideal situation. Let's say that you had a chance to uh, ask someone on a date and you didn't do it, but then at night you sleep about it and you sleep about asking and sleep, uh, dream about the, the answer and everything. So that's your brain trying to relive those moments and organize the information and uh, consolidating memories or sometimes fixing problems. So the REM sleep is good for that. If that doesn't happen, then we get deprived of REM sleep and we may have problems like changes in the mood, even depression, anxiety, and uh, some medications that won't let you sleep very well. They will affect this also and the next day you have this sensation of not being complete rest. Or sometimes wake up with the sensation that you just, you just fell asleep five minutes ago. And that is when you feel, you didn't have enough REM sleep probably during the night. It was just stage one, two, three, one, two, three, you never go back to REM sleep, or well, you did once or twice, but that's not usually enough. Questions, comments?